Welcome to episode 25 of Behind the Mission, a show that sparks conversation with Sidecarmer trusted partners and educational experts. My name is Dwayne France, and each week I'll be having conversations with podcast guests that will equip you with tools and resources to effectively engage with and support military service members, veterans, and their families. You can find the show on all the podcast players or by going to sidecarmer.org forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us on Behind the Mission. Our work and mission are supported by the generous partnerships and sponsors who also believe that education changes lives. This episode is brought to you by PsychArmor, the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military cultural content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners as well as custom training options for organizations. You can find more about PsychArmor at psycharmor.org. This week, I'm having a conversation with veteran and military advocate Danielle Applegate. Danielle is the Director of Veteran and Military Engagement for Cerner Government Services. Prior to joining Cerner, she served as Vice President of Vets First at the United Spinal Association, a VA-certified veteran service organization. She was the first National Outreach Coordinator for the Department of Veterans Affairs for Women Veterans, where she created and led groundbreaking women veteran initiatives and nationwide VA programming. You can find out more about Danielle by taking a look at her bio in our show notes, Let's get into my conversation with her and come back afterwards to talk about some of the key points. So you have an extensive background in supporting service members, veterans, and their families, uh, even as you are a member of that community yourself. Among your many roles is as a board member of PsychArmor. I'm interested to hear why you joined the board of PsychArmor and what role you think it plays in the organizational landscape of military population support organizations. So I've been aware of PsychArmor for many years throughout their different iterations, and of course, a big fan of Tina Atherall's. I would say what prompted me to get personally involved, I lost a roommate to suicide when I was on active duty in the Army many, many years ago. And about two years ago, a coworker that was working in the space of suicide prevention for veterans took his own life. And it prompted me to search for resources that addressed workplace grief because I didn't really feel like I was a valid, that my grief was valid, that the loss of my work what I would consider my work brother had a place or a role. And so instead of suppressing those emotions, I thought I should find out who was doing the best job at addressing it. And that was PsychArmor. They had instructional videos and probably two dozen different resources and articles that I read and digested and of course talked to my therapist about. And that really led me to get more personally involved. Around the suicide and behavioral health issues, I have found that the SAVE video that PsychArmor did is the most comprehensive, short, sweet, myth-busting a tool that I had experienced. And when I was at VA, it's mandatory training for VA government employees. And when I came into the private sector, I realized that a lot of those questions were not being addressed from an employer-employee perspective. And so I was super proud to partner with PsychArmor to bring that to Cerner. We're a global company. And so being able to offer that resource to 30,000 employees, I think, is really valuable. And I do think the way that we beat suicide is by all of us being aware of the signs and symptoms and not being afraid to ask the hard questions. So I love that video. And along the way, got to work with Tina more closely and was immensely honored when she asked me to join the board. I think most of my life's work has been connecting, really taking best practices from across sector, so public, private, nonprofit, government, and elevating them and amplifying them. And I think PsychArmor does that so well and so cleanly and really with cultural humility and lack of ego. And you don't see that a lot in these spaces. It's a very competitive space. 
everybody thinks they have the best idea and that their idea should win. So to work with and for an organization that is so collaborative, that really is the backbone of this learning revolution that I think we're in has, has really been rewarding. I guess that's the easiest way to put it. No, I, I really appreciate that. I was uh, I have a colleague, a uh, friend actually, who runs a military themed coffee shop here. And I was complaining to her one day about how everybody's in love with their own solution. Everybody loves the smell of their own cologne. Uh, and she looked at me and she said, and you're in love with your solution, aren't you? And I was like, well, yeah, you're right. And that is, and, and but some of that is because there's so much frustration around the gaps are there. The gaps are so huge. You can drive a truck through. We're still dealing with veteran homelessness, veteran unemployment, underemployment specifically, military spouses. And as you mentioned, suicide, the challenges are so large and, and organizations just want to try to jump in and do stuff. No, I would agree. There are 15 years ago when I got into this arena, there were 50 big organizations and now there are 500. I do think that we will see some of them collapse and subsume together. And then in the coming years, as we wind down the wars, I, I think hopefully we'll see some solutions that are similar, but not identical, really align. And I don't think we're there yet. You touched on something that is very near and dear to my heart, and that is data or data, depending on how you want to say it. We have so much in the 21st century. We have so much. We collect a little bit about everything from everyone, but we don't do it in a standardized manner. We don't do it in an apples to apples comparison manner. And what that leaves us with is stovepipes of very interesting, useful pieces, but no puzzle, right? Nothing that fits everything together. And it allows us to make coherent and comprehensive solutions moving forward to really put your idea up against mine and see what the data shows. We look at the government entities that are collecting a little bit about everything, and they're not talking to each other, and they're not talking to the community. And so how do we resolve that? Part of the reason that I joined Cerner was really to ensure that as we move from service members to veterans, that we retain some level of identical data in order to draw the conclusions and the research effectively. That's a long tail. We're going to be doing this for a couple more years, but we're excited about the fact that we're not going to lose people in that transition gap, right? This is a little bit of connective tissue to keep them connected to our community and supported uh, and hopefully aware of all the benefits and services that they're that are available to them. It's interesting, this idea of a lot of data is being collected in a bunch of different ways. I'm thinking about here specifically for military and veterans, the Department of Labor, Housing and Urban Development, Department of Education, the Department of Defense, and Department of Veterans Affairs, just off the top of my head, I'd and Homeland Defense. And Department of Commerce that says the census, they're actually the number one holder, the states, the counties, some of the local governments. And, and so where is the one ring to rule them all? And I understand that these kind of things are, there's privacy issues and our, our freedoms and things like that. But to be honest, the, the credit card companies have all of our information and social media has all our information. But that can be a daunting challenge is to take all of this, this massive noise of data that's out there and be able to pull out usable information that can help us solve some of these issues for veterans. No, I completely agree. I think, and you and I were talking about this earlier, the difference between a service member and a veteran is a day and a piece of paper, but we lose so many in that transition. And I say to people, I worked with Homeland Security and the World Trade Organization to come up with 10 common data elements for international imports, exports. And that was five years of effort to get 40 big countries to agree when I say name, what do I mean? You know, what is that nomenclature? Something as simple as um, date of birth, like which order do you put your 
do you know, is it day, month, year? Because if you're a Marine, it's not. And something as simple as that, though, really creating standards. If you look at the VA, they have seven large databases of toxic exposures. So there's an toxic embedded fragments, there's burn pits, there's Agent Orange, there's the Gulf War illness. So all of these different stovepipes that don't connect, they don't talk to each other. And if you wanted to write a research paper, if you wanted to go through the IRB process to access that data, it could be years. If you wanted to know how many cancer incidences took place in the Camp Lejeune toxic exposure population, which is a million people over 30 years, how do you track those people? It's again, years and years and years to extract all of this data to move forward. And to be quite honest, we can't continue to operate this way. It is untimely. It is cost prohibitive. And by the time we figure out an answer, it's 20 years too late. We're looking at the new presumptions that were just passed for Agent Orange. It's 30 years ago, 30 years. And so how do we fast forward and really connect all these dots so that we can learn quicker, faster, better? I think one of the challenges a lot of people see is maybe our conceptualization of the problem is lagging behind the technology that's out there. We have the technology today to be able to collect a lot of these things, or we have the ability to develop technology at a record-breaking pace, but we can build a great new tool. But if we don't understand how to use it, or even that it's necessary to use, it's still sitting on the shelf. Dwayne, I, I couldn't write these questions better. The part of my job at Cerner is actually to assist in the adoption of the technology that DOD and VA is investing in. The tools that are now going to be available at the fingertips of service members, family members, veterans, and caregivers, really with the keystroke, right? With your thumb on your phone, you can schedule appointments and check labs and transfer records. That level of connectivity has never been widely accessible to our entire population. And thanks to the 15-year struggle to get DOD and VA on the same electronic health record, we're there, we're getting there. And so now we actually need to galvanize our community to use the technology so that we can extract, like you said, useful data um, so that we can learn and grow faster, quicker and faster. There's a large divide between the cutting edge and bleeding edge. And our technology generally is on the bleeding edge. We have got to wait for the population, the users to catch up. And I think there's resistance to change. I'm familiar with, and this is and for veterans, especially, right? We're, we're used to large scale change. You can move me from one side of the country to the other on 30 days notice and I'm fine. But if the gate that I'm used to going into in the morning is closed, it ruins my day, right? So on big scale change and small scale change, we react differently, but people react differently to change and adopting these great new methods or even just different ways of thinking. It can be challenging. It is, but I think we're getting there. I, I have never in the 15 years I've really heavily been in this space. I have never seen so many interested parties coming to the table with the willingness to set aside their personal agendas and serve others best. We really saw it with the pandemic. I saw some of the five, and I wouldn't say rival service organizations, but there's a little bit of competition for uh, constituents amongst them and funding, of course. They all came to the table to get uh, vaccine awareness out, to get standards on mask wearing and hand washing and really create a common message that was blanketed. And I do think we saw the numbers. There was a horrible poll done early last year that said, if a vaccine comes, will you give it to your kids? And the military and veteran population, over 65% of them said no. And I understand that as a military kid and military myself, I got a lot of shots and I don't volunteer for them willingly. But really changing that perspective and perception was important, right? It's a public health issue. And so I did, I was gratified to see these big organizations all come together and say, we have to work to educate our population and really force them 
to accept uh, change and 21st century healthcare <laughs> because it is a foreign concept. I like the way you said that large change is easy, small change is hard. We are having a hard time with users that don't want to upgrade from Internet Explorer 11. A lot of veterans really like Internet Explorer 11, Dwayne. It is not a supported platform anymore. Even Microsoft will tell you that. And it is no longer a platform that the government websites, the .gov websites can support. When we are out implementing some of our electronic health record capabilities in the public, they're like, we can't access your system. I'm like, no, you can't access the government system because you've got to download a new browser, which is free and it takes two minutes. And even that small barrier, you would think I was asking for their firstborn kid. So there is work to be done. I hope to one day work myself out of a job, but between now and then, I will continue to fight. But I don't wonder if the, the pace of change is so much that people want to resist against the, the pace of change. In, in five years, in, which is a relatively short time in the span of things, you know that will likely go away. I mean, there's been some major changes in the military in the last 25 or 30 years. Much of your work really around women's veterans advocacy has been to support and amplify that. And there's been a huge change in the visibility in women veterans. For those of us, and I, and I served nearly a quarter of a century in the Army, and, and I remember a time I've always served with women in my career field. But a friend and colleague of mine describes a paradox that many women veterans experience the fact that when you're in the military, you're a very visible minority. Like you can tell which formation has a woman service member in there. But once you leave the military, you're a very invisible minority. Now you're in that 21 million veterans, a very small fragment of that. Why do you think it's important to be able to amplify the voices of women veterans, especially in this changing narrative landscape? So we know women are 51% of the general population. And when you go in the military, it's between 16 and 18% now, depending on who you look at or what numbers you're looking at. When I was in, it was about 6%. I've been out for about 15 years. And I remember walking into the VA for the first time and they said what I've been hearing all my life as a dependent, what's your sponsor's last name, last four. I will offer that the space has come a long way since then. Now that women are more visible in the service, that VA has adapted and overcome. And part of my work around women vets is really focused on creating a comfort level with them showing up at the VA where they, like you said, are a very small minority. They might be sitting in a room full of male veterans. So I got involved in being a women veteran. Just after I'd had my second child, a friend of mine posted on Facebook that she was looking for a woman veteran subject matter expert. And I said, well, I'm a second generation woman veteran, but I don't think I'm an expert in anything. And I got dragged into the arena and really made it my life's mission. And we complain about panels, all male panels, or all male panels talking about women's issues, reproductive issues, caregiving issues, childcare issues. And so anytime anybody asked for a woman veteran, I made sure that if I couldn't do it, that I found another woman veteran that could. It's been really rewarding work. I want to say it's like a phone tree of sorts. We have a book club because bringing our faces into the spotlight has really helped to show other women it's okay to come to the VA. It's okay to self-identify as a veteran. It's okay to park in a veteran space, which we see those horror stories of women getting notes saying, don't park here. And it's funny, I defensively at Home Depot or Lowe's, when I ask for the military discount, I already have my card out to show them that it's me, not my boyfriend who happens to be a veteran also. I, I think we're getting there slowly but surely. I do think it takes women showing up and I'm being present and not saying no. So I've been proud to support that work. We're watching women sign up in droves at the VA because the care is excellent. I have gotten cutting edge and as did my patient that I took care of, who was a woman veteran, cutting edge care at the VA that the community didn't offer me, like 3D mammograms or breast MRIs. Those are not things common 
communities across America, they're very common at the VA. All big VA medical centers provide those services. And I think we don't talk about it clearly enough that there are so many benefits available. Now we just need people to continue using them. And I think that's an important key. And as you mentioned, that women themselves identifying, I experienced this as I was a platoon sergeant for security escort in Afghanistan. And one of my, a number of my soldiers were injured, but one in particular, she had received a traumatic brain injury. And this was 2009. So we ensured that it was documented, at least in the basic way. But then she got out of the military. And of course, she marries another service member. And now she identifies herself as a caregiver and a mother. And it wasn't until she and I reconnected again. And I said, hey, remember that time that that happened? Are you service connected for TBI? And she says, I'm not even connected to the VA at all. She didn't see herself as a veteran. She saw herself as the spouse of a veteran. And even though she was hit by an IED in Afghanistan. I could, there's a million things I could say about that. One, I would offer that we have done work, at the Center for Women Veterans at VA worked very closely with Census to ensure that the questions that they asked for census were worded in a way that would make women self-identify. Because if you said originally back in the 80s, the question was, are you a veteran? 60% of women did not say yes. What we figured is you have to say, have you ever served in the armed forces? And then they would say, oh yeah, I did five years in the Navy or I was in the Air Force. So even something as simple as making them feel comfortable with the language. I would um, also add the second One of the campaigns that I'm most proud of in my career was the I Am Not Invisible campaign. It was started in the state of Oregon by a woman named Elizabeth Estabrooks, who currently is the acting director at the Center for Women Vets at VA. And it is a black and white photo, but usually in a power pose of women. And across the bottom, it says, I am not invisible. And then it has their name and their dates of service and their branch of service. We managed to get it funded. And there are pictures from all 50 states, so over 4,000 women veterans up on the Center for Women the veterans website. And what we did at the local VA medical centers, we actually framed them and hung them on the walls. So as you came in, you would see 10 images of women who looked like you, women in wheelchairs, women with prosthetics, women with team red, white, and blue as runners. And we found that creating just that visible welcome that women that look like me come to this facility created a groundswell of support and and recognition that I, I think is so much needed because yes, I've been asked a million times like, oh, who's your husband, honey? And I think this is, and even those, those experiences, hearing those anecdotes will cause women, and I know specifically I've heard it, that women say, well, I don't want to go to the VA because those kind of things happen. I and mean, again, this goes to the same conversation we had earlier about data is requires a culture shift for people to change the way they think and what they believe in order to make some of these advances that we're trying to come about. So I will say where the VA and the government has been really great at tracking data is in some of the health outcomes. And I know this is surprising to so many. The VA actually has better rates of screenings. So cervical cancer screenings, breast cancer screenings, they have better rates of annual physical general stuff that women have to have like pap smears and and mammograms. And they have better outcomes because they tend to catch stuff a little bit earlier and apply immediate treatment. So when you talk about the divide using community providers versus VA, I tell every woman veteran, give them a chance. They have dedicated practitioners in-house. They have dedicated spaces for women vets if if you need that or if that's what you uh, would feel more comfortable in, in most of the big medical centers. And I think we've really come a long way in trying to provide specific support services. The VA does a lot of fertility treatments now. They offer pregnancy care. I I think there is actually a four hour now, and I got to 
work a little bit with this, a four-hour training on all of the services available for women veterans at the VA. That's part of TAPS, part of uh, the Department of Labor Transition Program. So we're getting there. We're trying to connect all the dots. And I think it's necessary that even if there is a bad experience, that experience isn't indicative of all of the care. We see this in mental health care is that we generalize bad experiences and in very specific ways apply good experiences. Definitely also want to encourage any women veterans out there to listen and give it a chance, give the VA a chance. Danielle, thank you so much for joining the show today. If people wanted to find out more about what Cerner's doing, about the military and government support that that your office is doing, how can they find that? The easiest ways to go to cerner.com backslash serving those who served. And then of course they can always send me an email and I'll point them in the right direction. It's danielle.applegate at cerner.com. All right. We'll make sure those are in the show note. Thank you, sir. Once again, we would like to thank this week's sponsor, PsychArmor. PsychArmor is the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military culture content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners as well as custom training options for organizations. One of the first points that I would like to make is the lingering impact of one of the most significant issues that many in the military and veteran support space are looking at, the ongoing problem of suicide in the military and veteran population. On an episode of one of my previous podcasts, Headspace and Timing, Dr. Philip Smith, a researcher for Operation Deep Dive at the University of South Alabama, said that suicide is both common and rare. It is rare in that it happens so infrequently. Of the thousands of service members that Danielle has interacted with over the years, she recounted two specific personal instances of suicide loss. We can go many years without being directly impacted by a suicide loss. But it's common in the sense that just about everyone, especially those of us who are part of the military community, have been significantly impacted by it. It's devastating when it happens and it leaves so many questions. Why this person? Why at this time? Why did it happen in this way? What Danielle is talking about at the beginning of our conversation is how we respond to a death by suicide. For those of us who are working in the suicide prevention space, there's a term that we use to describe the actions that are taken after someone attempts suicidal self-harm but doesn't die, or when someone dies by suicide. This is called postvention. A lot of people understand what prevention is and what intervention is, but it's important to understand what means what. As Danielle mentioned in the interview, for everyone to be on the same sheet of music, we must have a common nomenclature. For those who may not be familiar with the military, nomenclature is one of those military euphemisms that simply means a system of naming stuff. There's nomenclature everywhere in the military, and it serves as a common understanding of what things are. I served as a jump master in the Army at a couple of my duty stations, and part of the job was learning the proper nomenclature of equipment. The Fort Benning Nomenclature Guide for Individual Equipment and Containers, for example, is over 50 pages long, 25 of those pages listing individual items with their proper names. Trust me, you don't want the person inspecting the equipment that you're going to use to jump out of this perfectly good airplane to call an item a universal static line snap hook at one installation, but go to another installation, and it's called a hookup thing. The point of the diversion into this airborne minutia is to emphasize Danielle's point that in order to solve the problem of suicide in the military and veteran population, or any lingering concern, homelessness, underemployment, harassment, racism, We need to come to a common understanding of what words mean, how to use them, and how to engage with them in the proper way. That was one of the ways that we were successful in the military, 
There was a common background knowledge that formed a basis of understanding. The same thing needs to happen in post-military life when we're trying to address some of these challenging problems. Another point that I'd like to emphasize is similar to that. Daniel's observation of the military and veteran space. We're all frustrated by the problem of collaboration while we're simultaneously working to make the problem worse. After a community conversation on veteran homelessness, a colleague from outside the homelessness space made this observation to me once. You're all digging foxholes, but who's making sure that the foxholes are coordinated and facing in the right direction? Danielle described it as everyone walking around with a puzzle piece in search of a puzzle. We see a problem in the military and veteran community, and we carve out a piece that we think will solve the problem. But somehow, it doesn't seem to quite fit with all veterans with that problem, or it fits with veterans with that problem in one location, but not another. And it doesn't seem to quite fit with the other pieces that are trying to solve the other problems that the veteran has. So we wander around looking for a single solution when we don't completely understand what the problem is. We bring our puzzle pieces to the puzzle convention and wander around looking for a match. But we're folks wandering around with puzzle pieces in search of a place to put them. It's a bit backwards and really inefficient. So what's the solution? Who wants to form the committee that will create the grand unification theory that solves the wide range of problems that members of the military-affiliated population face? I'm not a fan of decision by committee, and that committee would be in the thousands. It would end up being like the Galactic Senate in Star Wars, and we all know how that turned out. From my point of view, the best that we can do is collaborate at the local level. What does the picture look like of homelessness, unemployment, suicide in your community? What is the puzzle there? And then start adding pieces that fit. Create or become part of an agency of agencies. Understand how your puzzle piece fits in with your neighbor's puzzle piece, not how much similar or different your puzzle piece is to other puzzle pieces. If we actually collaborated as much as we talk about collaboration, then we might be able to have some meaningful change in our communities. But getting back to suicide prevention, for this week's Psych Armor Resource of the Week, I'd like to highlight a resource that Danielle mentioned in the show, Psych Armor's Save Training. This course was developed in collaboration with the Department of Veterans Affairs and is presented by Dr. Megan McCarthy, Deputy Director, Suicide Prevention. You'll develop a general understanding of the problem of suicide in the United States, understand how to identify a veteran who may be at risk for suicide, and finally, know what to do if you identify a veteran at risk. Each of us has the opportunity to be that one person who makes a difference, the person who asks the question that can save a veteran's life or the life of anyone struggling with thoughts of suicide. Using the simple steps of save, we can all make a difference. You can find a link to the course in the show notes. So thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find which you can find at psycharmor.org forward slash BTM25, as well as on the PsychArmor website. You will find the link to everything we talked about in today's show, as well as hundreds of online training videos delivered by nationally recognized subject matter experts who are committed to educating the civilian community about military culture. All of these courses are free to individual learners. Thank you for joining me on this episode and for continuing to join us on this journey. You wouldn't be listening if you didn't care, and it's that curiosity and passion for supporting service members and their families that we want to encourage and increase. Come back each week for another conversation, and make sure to engage with PsychArmor on social media to let us know what you think about the show. I'd like to express special thanks to Operation Encore and Navy Seahawk pilot Jerry Maniscalco for our theme song, Don't Kill the Messenger. This show was produced by Headspace and Timing, and all rights to the show remain reserved by PsychArmor. Feel free to share the show. In fact, we would like for you to do that, but make sure you let folks know where you heard it. Join us next time for another great episode. And until then, stay aware, get educated, and be well.